What is this? Well, I don't know. Are you sure? Oh my god. The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. F, 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 F. Kaboom! This is Chase LeBenz uh, saying the F word. Take one. Fuck. Good heavens, what a terrible curse. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been about two months since my last episode. We're finished. I'm putting you on a plane to Vegas. That's your punishment. Hmm. Not bad. I don't think that was very good, really. <clears throat> hey there. Welcome back to the Hansel and Gretel Code. This here is episode 31. Who are you, Frankenstein's monster? This is a ridiculous exercise in noise pollution. In our last episode, we met Cornelius Agrippa, the Renaissance polymath from Cologne, Germany, and the very guy the character of Hansel was modeled after. And who, by the way, was also the real Dr. Faustus. Which is to say, the guy who Goethe modeled his Dr. Faust after. Porus says, what a load of bollocks. Hey, that's fine. You don't need to believe me. Just let me know what you think after we've gone through the whole fairy tale, okay? Um, I think not. Okay, then. Well, last time we figured out a way to use Agrippa's expertise in magic to advance the cause of both feminism and intuition. Who cares? Oh man, you're killing me here. Hey, remember we also figured out that working with AI is a Faustian deal with the devil. No, it's not. Hey, fuck you. Oh! Hey, it's alright. It's alright. You know... Following Agrippa's lead, we can probably figure out a way to make that AI deal work for us without uh, having to, uh, you know... Go to hell! <laughs> Let's go. Part 1 Teil 1 In which we spill the beans on Hermes Trismegistus. Eeny, meeny, chilly beanie, these spirits are about to speak. Are they friendly spirits? Friendly? Oi, you messed this up. I'll introduce you to Uncle Stanley. He'll open you up like a tin of beans. Yikes! Today, as promised, I'm going to spill the beans on Hermes Trismegistus. Hip-hop! Hooray! Hip-hop! Hooray! 
Now, just to remind you, he's the purported author of several ancient texts collectively known as the Hermetic Literature, or just plain Hermetica. And while nobody seems to know exactly who he was, that's never stopped a whole slew of academics from weighing in on the matter. Of course. He was long considered to be some mysterious ancient philosopher whose wisdom and self-assured authority was such that it had people thinking he must have been a god. That's correct. During the Renaissance, plenty of notable scholars figured he was a contemporary of Moses. And not a god, but eh, just another prophet. These days, academics think he fits the profile of the ancient Egyptian god, Holt. My name is unimportant. Although, if he was a god, nobody knows who took down his divine dictation. And, in effect, Ghost wrote his books. I don't know anymore. All anybody could ever say for sure was that his first-person texts were mostly dialogues, with him talking to some student or acolyte. And in them, he passed on his secret knowledge of the three intuitive arts, astrology, alchemy, and theurgy. Oh, wow, man. Do you want to know a secret? Of course, due to its brevity and New Age soundbiteability, you know... As above, so below. The Emerald Tablet is probably the best known among those texts. Definitely. But there's another famous, or should I say infamous, text that's known by the name of the student involved, Asclepius. And it's considered notorious by the uberlogical academic crowd. So, what, 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 why? I'll explain why in just a bit. For now... Just remember, the hermetic arts are also called occult arts. I remember. All right. And that's why Agrippa's landmark work, his uh, cookbook of magic, was titled Three Books of Occult Philosophy, because it drew heavily on the hermetic literature. Now, in the Hermetica, Hermes gives us a hefty dose of cosmology and cosmogony. What the fuck does that mean? Those are explanations of the nature, the structure, and the origin of the universe, and of mankind. And that makes the Hermetic literature a weird combination of the Hermetic arts, plus the book of Genesis, and, uh, I don't know, how about Milton's Paradise Lost? Yeah, well, despite the boring bits, throughout history, anything having to do with Hermes Trismegistus, and theurgy in particular, was thought of as synonymous with the practice of magic. Ooh, I like that. Of course, in order to perform the kind of magic ascribed to Hermes and Hermeticism, it was always assumed you needed some wise old adept, some Yoda character, or some bearded wizard to train you, and pass on all sorts of closely guarded secrets. Most assuredly. Yeah, sure. Just think of Goethe's entertaining story of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, which, of course, most of us boomers know from Walt Disney's Fantasia. What? All right, how about Harry Potter, okay? Okay, boomer. Hey, 
The whole idea of learning from some geezer with a magic wand and a pointy hat? That's a cartoon cliché. Mickey Mouse much? If you really wanted to learn, the most important thing was to find somebody who could trace his or her knowledge and expertise through an unbroken chain of teachers going all the way back to Hermes Trismegistus. Really? Yes, indeed. Of course, they also had to be willing to teach you, meaning they had to know you personally. Yet, there was Agrippa, one such somebody, who was out there spilling the beans on the whole thing, giving away all those original hermetic secrets to anyone who could pony up and buy what was, and still is considered, the ultimate cookbook of magic. That's bad. That, that's bad. That, that's bad. Yeah, it uh, kind of is. Except right there in plain sight, and in plain English, or I mean in plain Latin, that is, Agrippa included the well-known emphatic caveat that only the wise will be able to understand what he was saying. Oh, but that's all superstition. Oh, not so. Of course, that didn't stop plenty of wise guys from thinking they were smart enough and wise enough to hit the jackpot and get all sorts of angels and demons to do their bidding. You know, just by following Agrippa's secret recipes. How to blend 11 herbs and spices that make Kentucky Fried Chicken so finger-licking good. That's the Colonel's secret. Forever. Now, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, but see, the occult arts, they aren't so named because you need to learn all sorts of amazing secrets to practice them. You don't even need to become a sorcerer's apprentice. And why not? Well, because there's something else you need. Something that no amount of book learning or even some wise instructor can give you. What? You need an initiation. What? You need an initiation. Just like in the ancient mystery cults. No way. Oh, yes way. And that's because the real mystery, the real secret, and there really is only one secret, that secret is intuition. Can you keep my secret? Uh, I don't know. See, intuition requires an initiation because it's something that can't be learned or taught. It can only be experienced. Bollocks, just bollocks. Yeah, well, you can only get that experience through a carefully orchestrated rite of passage. In other words, an initiation. Now a lot sounds like really bullshit. Are you scared of the Illuminati? Hey, once upon a time we all had intuition. We're all born with it. In fact, just being born was enough of an initiation. But the culture has pretty much kicked intuition out of the house, meaning out of our consciousness. And now it's mostly lost in the forest of our own unconscious. So in order to get it back, well, that's what this fairy tale and this podcast is for. And learning who the real Hermes Trismegistus is, well, that's a huge part of getting intuition back.
All right, already. Get on with it. All right. So right now, I'm going to tell you who Hermes Trismegistus was. Although I really should say who Hermes Trismegistus is. Because he's still here. No way. Oh, yes, he is. Liar. All right. What I just said is something of a lie. Because Hermes Trismegistus isn't a he. It's the girl with the big, gorgeous, killer thighs. How do you know that? Uh, she isn't a she, either. I'm sorry, what? The fuck is this? I am confused. Well, just like the original Hermaphroditus of Greek mythology, the son of Hermes and Aphrodite, Hermes Trismegistus isn't one gender or the other. What are you talking about? Well, remember last time we said that intuition isn't gender-specific? I remember. Yeah, well, Hermes Trismegistus is the voice of intuition. Your own intuition. So in other words, Hermes Trismegistus is a personification of your own intuition. Oh my god. Oh, my God. Oh, my God! Yeah, that's pretty much the deal. So, maybe I should say Hermes T is the archetype of your intuition. And anything legitimately written in his, or I mean their name, was, and should always be obtained by way of theurgic ritual. This is really confusing for me. So, I don't know if you're familiar with Jung's Red Book? No, sir. That's all right. All you need to know is that it's a record of his own theurgic ritual, what he called active imagination. He also spoke of it as the transcendent function. Anyway, in this big book with a fancy red cover, he recorded his conversations with someone named Philemon. But I'm here to tell you that really means Philemon was Hermes Trismegistus the archetype of Jung's own intuition. Oh God, oh Jesus. Calling himself Philemon would mean that the voice of Hermes Trismegistus was filtered through Western European culture and through Jung's individual cultural upbringing, meaning his family, his Christianity, and maybe above all, his extensive reading. See, Philemon and his wife Bauchis appear in Ovid's great Latin poem, The Metamorphoses, as the humble and generous hosts of Jupiter and Mercury. The gods had disguised themselves as traveling peasants and were more or less shooed away by everyone except that humble couple. So in the context of this episode, their story becomes another take on the real premise of Hansel and Gretel, meaning how the culture teaches us to reject intuition and feeling, and how only some people choose to welcome them into consciousness as honored guests, and how, of course, they'll be rewarded for doing so. So Jung had his Philemon and Salome. But you can bet that Siberian shaman, for example, well, they've got different names for Hermes Trismegistus, as do Native Americans. Asians, 
and any culture across the globe. You and I would as well. Nonsense. Hey, conversations like those recorded in Jung's Red Book and in the Hermetica, well, they've taken place throughout the ages. And that's because theurgic rituals have been and continue to be performed to this very day. In fact, historic records of theurgic conversations exist in abundance, albeit without reference to theurgy, or even to Hermes Trismegistus. Are you out of your mind? Think of Marguerite Porete and her Mirror of Simple Souls. Remember her from Episode 8? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. Well, whenever we engage in the Hermetic Arts, whether it's alchemy or theurgy, or even the daily horoscope, whether we realize it or not, we're dealing with Hermes Trismegistus. You're kidding, right? I'm only half kidding. Because unless we're doing any of those things under the auspices of a genuine adept, or we're well acquainted with our own intuition, we run the risk of unleashing forces we might not be able to handle. Oh, no. Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't just mean that bunch of busy broomsticks, like the ones in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Oh, no. Yeah, what I mean is Jung's own caveat concerning active imagination and the unconscious. In other words, there's a potential for drowning or getting lost in it, which means unleashing a latent psychosis. Oh, crap! Despite the danger, necromancers and magicians of all stripes have sought commerce with demons and angels. Not for the sake of henosis and their soul, you know, returning to the one, but for the sake of persuading those spirits to fix shit for them. Shit they couldn't or wouldn't fix for themselves. And they did so not only by using Agrippa's magic recipes, but by the very same theurgic ritual described in that notorious hermetic text I mentioned earlier, the Asclepius. And specifically, a ritual that's derisively known as animating statues. Pier totem locomotor! I've always wanted to use that spell. Oh my god! Ridiculous! Part 2 Teil 2 In which we read the most infamous passage in antiquity and find out what Hermes Trismegistus has to do with mowing the lawn. You kids get off my lawn! For the record, this business of animating statues, it's a genuine theurgic practice alluded to in the hermetic text I mentioned earlier, the one known as the Asclepius. It's important. So just let me repeat the relevant, infamous passage. You can read it for yourself, and I'll leave a link. But uh, here's the short version. Fine, fine then. Humanity persists in imitating divinity, 
representing its gods in its own image. Are you talking about statues, Trismegistus? Statues, Asclepius, yes. I mean statues ensouled and conscious, filled with spirit and doing great deeds. Statues that know the future and predict it by lots, by prophecy, by dreams, and by many other means. Statues that make people sick and cure them, bringing people pain and pleasure as each person deserves. Yeah, so what? Hermes is saying that the gods actually come down, enter into the statue, and bring it to life. You just have to know that it's not like Professor McGonagall casting a spell and turning gargoyles into warriors. It's more like Pygmalion, or even Frankenstein's monster, except the animated statue doesn't live on and on. The animation, it lasts only for the briefest time. Which is to say, the time the theurgist spends meditating in front of the statue and paying careful attention to it. (laughs) Right. Well, here's the deal. I brought this up in earlier episodes. How Jung said the Latin word numen means a nod of the head. And how this coming to life of a statue and seeing it give you the high sign, well, that's the root idea behind the word numen and the human experience of numinosity. Now, Jung doesn't say so explicitly, but he was referring to this very passage in the Asclepius and to the practice of theurgy. See, Jung understood this to mean an experience that's so super spectacular that gives you goosebumps, something popularly known as a religious experience. And I think you know what I mean by that, because you've had experiences like that yourself. You also know that as profoundly moving as they are, they're just as fleeting as the smell of freshly cut grass or the scent of lilacs. One instant the fragrance is there, and then it's gone. But in that brief instant it's there, it transports you. Now in terms of theurgy, It means being so attuned to the representation of a god or goddess, being immersed, as it were, in a humble and prayerful attitude, that the statue actually communicates with you. And here's the important point. It may or may not do so by literally nodding its head. But I can guarantee that if and when it does communicate with you, it does so by way of your own intuition. And what it communicates amounts to a spectacular, albeit very brief, intuitive experience of knowing. Knowing that your soul has been brought closer to the divine. Because in that brief instant, you can literally feel divinity making itself known and present to you. And that's what Hermes Trismegistus is talking about in this weird passage. Now, in the context of theurgy, to perceive a statue nodding its head, it's strictly an intuitive leap out of logical space and time and into sacred space and time, something you can only do or appreciate via your intuition. 
And over the centuries, the idea has been mocked by logical types who take it strictly literally. This doesn't smell quite the way I expected. And it's still mocked by academics. People who have no faith in the power of intuition, and who can only believe the very concept to be a humbug, a ridiculous delusion, or even a flagrant hallucination. But I can tell you, this is no humbug, because I myself once had just such an experience. Are you crazy much? No, I'm not crazy, and I'm not bragging. I'm only reminding myself that it actually did happen. See, as vivid and moving as the experience was, there's no way to bring back the feeling, that numinous moment of sacred space and time. That would be like trying to bring back the scent of freshly cut grass, just by remembering that you have indeed experienced that marvelous scent sometime in the past. The knowing, the gnosis, that persists, even in linear space and time. And for that, I'm grateful. But the experience, that remains outside of linear space and time, in a realm that's only available to intuition. Yeah, sure, logic calls it something that happened in the past. And the fact remains, it did indeed happen in linear space and time, in a factual moment of personal history. See, I remember many of the facts and details of the day surrounding that moment. But if I hadn't already been introduced to my own intuition, I seriously doubt it ever would have happened. More importantly, I know for sure I would have either misinterpreted what did happen, or just completely missed it. And as I say this, I realize that the feeling I had in that brief, numinous moment, a moment that I didn't miss, well, that experience and that feeling of numinosity, that does live on, but only in sacred space and time. And that's what theurgy and theurgic ritual is for to bring us back into sacred space and time, to bring us back into the feeling, into the numinous. And that feeling, that's what henosis is. So on that note, I want to say, if you're interested, I'd be happy to elaborate. You just have to contact me personally. Absolutely not. Yeah, well, I'll leave a link. Now, the literal version of animating statues comes up in fiction, like Harry Potter. It's also the very basis of Frankenstein. And if you're at all familiar with Italian cinema... Per forza. Yeah, okay. So you know that Giovannino Guareschi's Don Camillo, the entertaining post-war parish priest... He's always getting advice from the talking crucifix in his church. Senza dubbio. Yeah, but all of that fiction presupposes the common cultural bias that intuition itself is fictional. And because of that bias, we most often mistake intuition for superstition, and vice versa. 
And over the centuries, over a millennia even, people have taken their superstitions seriously and tried to exploit them in a sometimes narcissistic or even at times sociopathic way by producing what I call talking heads. Blah, 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 Psycho killer. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Run, 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 run away. Oh boy. Oh boy. Part 3. Teil 3. In which we discover the true origin of the magic eight ball and meet some famous talking heads who won't, uh, I mean, can't give autographs. No autographs! No! They hate you! They'll have your head! Who are you talking to, lady? A large part of things exist in our own heads. <clears throat> so let me tell you a little story that should explain a whole hell of a lot about theurgy, magic, and religion, about the power of intuition, and how intuition has been twisted and misused in mankind's desperate and sometimes ruthless search to find a reliable substitute for Hansel and Gretel bread. All right, if you insist. First, a little background. Oh, no. Not again. <sighs> oh, come on. Context is important. The story starts in southeastern Turkey, about 12 miles north of the Syrian border, in a town called Haran. Now, normally, we'd all get on the time machine and take a little trip there, since this is one hell of an old story, and one that apparently took place pretty often, between at least 2500 BC and 1200 Common Era. Mm. Now, but this time, we're going to stay right where we are and use a different sort of technology, one that's simultaneously very modern and very ancient. What's that? Well, it's something that fits right into this story as a cross between a crystal ball and Wilson. Huh? You know, Wilson. The volleyball from that Tom Hanks movie, Castaway? I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was really atmospheric. All right. In fact, Tom Hanks communicating with Wilson... It's a pretty interesting portrayal of what this story is pointing towards. What's that? Well, let's call it communication with the unconscious. The same thing that Jung called active imagination. Of course, he also called it the transcendent function. But instead of doing some Jungian song and dance, I'm going to let you decide for yourself where and how it fits into the story I'm about to share. All right, if you say so. So after the 12th century, the people in our story, the Haranites or Haranians, who called themselves Sabians, by the way, well, they became Muslim in the 12th century. And I guess uh, that was the end of that. Can you please explain what the fuck you are talking about? Well, going back to the time before these guys embraced Islam, they were known to worship a god by the name of Zin. Now, Zin was the god of the moon. And these Haranites, these moon worshippers, 
they considered Hermes Trismegistus to be their great prophet. Ah. Yeah. And as interesting as that is, it's not the important part of the story. What is important is that they were known far and wide as masters of the head. Sounds interesting. Now, the source of our story is an Arabic text that eventually got itself translated into Spanish, as so much ancient Arabic wisdom was. Hola, me llamo Maria, and I am your daily Spanish instructor. Repeat after me. Pudrate en el infierno, puta. Oh, brother. Of course, the Spanish version made its way into Latin. The English version, which is known by its Latin name, Picatrix, it's still around. And, just like Agrippa's cookbook, is still hugely popular. I'll leave a link. Good idea! Now, the original Arabic title has a typically alchemical ring to it, as it translates into the aim of the sage, or the goal of the wise. But it's mostly a book of magic and astrology that Agrippa himself was well aware of, at least in the Latin version. Anyway, the Latin text, or more probably the French translation, that made its way to Carl Jung, who relates a remarkable story of the Haranites, almost verbatim, from the text. Anyway, that's how I learned of it. So, uh, here goes. A fair-haired man with dark blue eyes was lured into a chamber of the temple, where he was immersed in a great jar filled with sesame oil. Only his head was left sticking out. There he remained for forty days, and during this time was fed on nothing but figs soaked in sesame oil. He was not given a drop of water to drink. As a result of this treatment, his body became soft as wax. The prisoner was repeatedly fumigated with incense, and magical formulae were pronounced over him. Eventually, his head was torn off at the neck, the body remaining in the oil. The head was then placed in a niche on the ashes of burnt olives and was packed round with cotton wool. More incense was burned before it, and the head would thereupon predict famines or good harvests, changes of dynasty, and other future events. Its eyes could see, though the lids did not move. It also revealed to people their inmost thoughts, and scientific and technical questions were likewise addressed to it. Boy. Well, as an obvious forerunner of the Magic 8-Ball, it's quite some talking head story, don't you think? True that. But that is not all. Uh, right. See, I also learned about a less fiendish talking head story from Jung. It concerns Gerbert of Aurillac, or uh, Gerbert of Aurillac the future Pope Sylvester II. Now, just so you know, Silvestro, he was Pope for four years, from the year 999 to 1003. Now, Sylvester is way more interesting than your average Pope. 
And oddly enough, the source of the most interesting bits about him, it's in a book called Chronicles of the Kings of England. I'll leave a link to the appropriate chapter. Okay. So uh, the story goes, After carefully inspecting the stars, he cast for himself a bronze head that could speak and truthfully answer questions in the affirmative or negative. I want that one. Yeah, I know. Now, apparently, Silvestro, he was every bit as intelligent, intuitive, and interesting as Agrippa. He was a genuine adept at all three hermetic arts, astrology, alchemy, and theurgy. And considering the ugly schadenfreude unleashed at his death, I suspect he was just as liberal and empathic as Agrippa. Maybe. One thing's for certain. That bronze head he made? That just might have been the world's first mechanical AI engine. Or, shall we say, vegan magic eight ball? Uh, (laughs) Will I get beat up today? All signs point to yes. That ball knows everything. Part 4 Teil 4 In which we introduce Hansel's strange Uncle Albert. Another medieval screwball, um, I mean, eight ball maker. New Jersey's most famous foreign born citizen. Professor Albert Einstein, who helped discover the atom bomb. Hi, Big Al here in Switzerland. What the fuck? There's an interesting story about St. Big Al, I mean, St. Albertus Magnus, and the mechanical talking head he constructed. This was yet another medieval AI engine, and was probably meant for the same sort of purpose as the Haronite heads, and the Magic 8-Ball albeit with a pious Catholic bent. And just like Pope Sylvester, Big Al put his together according to astrologic auguries. Behold, the mystery of the cosmos. The story goes that his pupil, St. Thomas Aquinas, was so unnerved by the thing that he smashed it to pieces. Oh, and I suppose you think that's funny, huh? I particularly like that story because it happened right here in the town where I live, Cologne, Germany, which is where Albertus was and still is a local big shot. Now, I also like the story because there are two official biographies of Albertus that make him sound like a saintly Dr. Faustus, which is to say an Orthodox Catholic anti-Faust. You know, a magus with nothing but prayer in his heart and holy magic in his fictitious, miraculous antics. He was holy. Uh, right. Now, one episode in particular, it has Big Al asking God for permission to visit purgatory. Because, just like Faust, he was dissatisfied with knowing only the stuff he learned by reading Aristotle and whatever books of magic he could lay his hands on. In other words, having learned everything that could possibly be known in the world, 
He wanted to learn the stuff that couldn't be known. I'm thinking this is a double duality. Well, fact is, these biographies were commissioned by the Dominican successors of Albert's purview here in Cologne, in hopes of having their guy become another Santo Subito after his death in 1280. You know, get him voted into the Catholic Hall of Fame? Except, for whatever reason, that was not to be. Not for another 651 years, to be exact. It wasn't until 1931 that Mr. Albertus finally became St. Albertus. Why, 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 why? I suspect part of the reason they kept him out of the hall must have been... He takes steroids. What is steroids? In Germany, we we don't know. Steroids. I guess they didn't call him Big Al for nothing. Uh, Ah. 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 All right, all right, all right. So, you'd think the obvious reason they kept him out of the hall was Big Al's sketchy and less-than-scientific interest in magic. I agree. But there might have been another, even more important reason that was never fully made public. What's that? By all accounts, it sounds as if Albertus the scholar of scholars and knower of knowers, tipped way over into dementia in his final years. Aww. Yeah, and as sad as that is for anybody, things he did and said in the final two years of his life, well, they must have been not just embarrassing, but uh, less than, uh, well, saintly. Hey, can I touch your butt? Yeah, buns and ties. <clears throat> hey, I'm thinking something a touch more unsaintly. Oh yeah, like what? Well, back in the 13th century, you gotta figure dementia would have been considered a form of insanity. Which really means it must have been considered a form of demonic possession. Don't you think? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if Big Al came out with a few choice words of, uh, you know, blasphemy. And probably on a daily basis. Jesus Christ. Exactly. Actually, reminds me of Thomas Akempis, the guy who wrote uh, The Imitation of Christ, and how he got disqualified from sainthood? Steroids. Uh, no. The story goes that when they dug him up, To inspect him for sainthood, they found scratch marks on the inside of his coffin lid and wood splinters under his nails. Uh, Well, since it was obvious he'd found himself buried alive, they couldn't be sure he didn't uh, blaspheme before he really passed. Oh God, oh Jesus. Exactly. Well, blasphemy aside... The Vatican doesn't let anyone into the hall unless they perform a few miracles. You know, like making it rain during a drought, curing a few brain tumors, or or at least helping someone win a massive lottery jackpot. That's uh, not funny. Of course, miracles are something that theurgy can produce, as can astrology and alchemy. 
and Big Al was supposed to have been an adept at at least those latter two. So this should have been a piece of cake. And again, as far as the Vatican is concerned, only post-mortem miracles count. So maybe it took his ghost all those centuries to uh, figure it out? You know, kind of like Phil Connors? Am I right or am I right or am I right? Hm, wahrscheinlich beim Wachwechsel. Ja, ja, it's okay. Oh, but as I keep saying, miracles are not the goal of the hermetic arts or of intuition. Even if Hermes Trismegistus said that all sorts of miracles were possible. So what? Well, miracles and magic are fun, but they're not the goal. The goal is henosis, getting to know the true nature of God and allowing the soul to return to God, or the One, without having to wait for, uh, you know, death. And as far as history goes, most of those talking heads, they were used for the sake of the ego, not the soul. Some of them were indeed used in theurgic ritual, but for the most part, they were used for thaumaturgy. The fuck is that? Well, thaumaturgy... It's just a fancy word for magic and the ability to perform miracles. And the thing that distinguishes theurgy from thaumaturgy, which is to say what distinguishes theurgy from magic, it's all in the attitude and intention of the magus or magician. Now just to remind you, in the context of this fairy tale, the object of theurgy is to get back home to the house of the father. And the most significant theurgic miracle would be to secure the daily bread of both the stomach and the soul. Ordinary thaumaturgy, or magic, it's the business of a would-be Faust, an outright narcissist, or just a plain ordinary someone who's desperate enough or careless enough to give up the idea of henosis in exchange for the power to produce plenty of bread. And, of course, amaze his friends and confound his enemies. I like that! And then again, if you read St. Paul, he's telling the Corinthians straight up that by getting baptized and joining his church, you too can amaze your friends and confound your enemies. So if you ask me, that's straight-up propaganda, if not bribery. I don't think so. Hey, you can read it for yourself. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's pretty entertaining. But it's way too busy for me to quote here. Something like 24 verses. I'll leave a link. Roger, Dad. We've been at this for hours now. Right, right. Uh, I hear ya. See, I didn't want to spend so many episodes on one single line of the fairy tale. But the Cumian Sibyl, herself a theurgist, was well acquainted with Hermes Trismegistus and wanted me to do what I could to set the record straight. Because both she and Hermes, they're in there. Which is to say, in the symbolism of Hansel's moon rocks. And in Hansel himself. So that's why we went down this rabbit hole of theurgy in the first place. And why we've been here for so long. There are more stories of talking heads and theurgy that I'd love to tell, but it's time to move along in our fairy tale. Hooray! 
Right. We've gotten enough meaning out of Hansel's moon rocks, at least for now. And believe me, there are plenty more surprises in them. So, there's just one more thing I want to say here. For the love of everything sacred and holy, would you please shut your yapper? Well, I have to say that I'm tired of searching. I'm going to take a little break. You coming, Curtis? All right, all right. Part 5 Teil 5 In which we check the links in a golden chain and drop a few famous names like Mo, Larry and Elvis. So, the symbolism in these moon rocks is such that each one of them deserves an episode all on its own. And believe me, there are way more than just the three of them. Do not do that, please. No, 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 no. No, don't worry. I won't. So, you already know why Hansel's picking up those pebbles in the first place, right? No. Uh, I know we haven't gotten that far in the fairy tale yet. But you and I already know Hansel's going to drop them along the path so that he and Gretel can find their way back home, back to the house of the father. Now those pebbles, they're the first iteration of the famous breadcrumb trail. No, really? Uh, yeah, really. And remember I mentioned that business of tracing an unbroken line of teachers going all the way back to Hermes Trismegistus himself? See, I have Peter Kingsley to thank for that insight, and for being one of those teachers. In fact, both Peter Kingsley and Carl Jung are major links in that chain. And while Jung can be very difficult for beginners to read and digest, Peter Kingsley is much more accessible. And, wonderfully enough, he's still around. I'll leave a link. Thank you. Well, there's an unbroken chain of wise, intuitive teachers that you and I are connected to via Agrippa and, of course, via our acquaintance with Hansel, who I said is the spitting image of Agrippa. And so each of Hansel's pebbles represents one of those intuitive hermetic teachers. Are you sure about that? Well, yes, I am, actually. Or at least my intuition is. Now, I had wanted to name some of the most important teachers in that chain, and I wanted to say just a little something about each of them, if only because the author of our fairy tale and the Kumian Sibyl wanted us to learn about them. How do you know that? Well, that's because I've already gone through the entire fairy tale and learned most, if not all, of its secrets. And that, my friends... That's one of those secrets. Oh, Christmas before you okay, say anything. All right, all right. <laughs> we believe you thousands wouldn't. <laughs> so, just like Hansel's pebbles, I wanted to drop some of those names one by one, starting with Agrippa, and leading as far back as I could through Western European history. But I'm not going to do that here and now. And I'm not going to do that in the next episode. Oh my god, thank god. 
Well, my plan is to drop those names in special, very short, extra episodes. So that's all I'll say about them right now. Except for one of them. Really? Uh, yeah. Her name is Marcellina. And she was a theurgist and teacher of the intuitive arts from around the second century common era. You can read something about her in Wikipedia, but you have to read between the lines to understand how extraordinary she was and how very much like Agrippa she must have been. In fact, all that we know about her comes mostly from those old windbag heresy hunters we met in episode 28. Boo! fits into this episode because Aside from the nasty, misogynist things those old geezers had to say about her, one thing in particular sheds an amazing new light on the idea of talking heads. Something I had never realized, but that my intuition was all over. Now, according to Irenaeus, They possess images, some of them painted, but they maintained that a likeness of Christ was made by Pilate back when Jesus lived among them. They crowned these images and set them up with the images of the philosophers like Pythagoras and Plato and the rest. They also have other modes of honoring these images. This is lame. Hey, I get it. All he's saying is that Marcellina and her crew had paintings and statues of Christ and Pythagoras and honored them. Like you can't find statues of Jesus Christ anywhere and everywhere? What the fuck? And I guess the inclusion of Pythagoras, that makes it sound even less interesting than the pink velvet Elvis I bought at the New York State Fair 30 years ago. Right? Affirmative. Well, even so, my intuition is telling me that these images... They weren't just for show, and they weren't souvenirs. I suspect they were honored in the same way that Hermes Trismegistus meant when he taught Asclepius about statues. In other words, via that theurgic ritual known as animating statues. What Jung spoke of as active imagination. Oh no, you can't be serious. That is some bullshit right there. Hey. Your opinion? It says it ain't so. But my intuition? It says, fuck yeah. That's what they were doing. Oh my god. Consider this, too. The Wikipedia article mentions the ideas of Professor Joan E. Taylor, a writer and historian, from her well-researched book, What Did Jesus Look Like? Now, according to the article... She notes that Irenaeus doesn't say that Marcellina's portrait of Jesus was inaccurate and may even have survived the centuries. Now, apparently, a third-century Roman emperor, Alexander Severus, he had a collection of portrait busts of famous guys, including Jesus, Orpheus, Alexander the Great, and even Abraham. Yeah, so what? So Dr. Taylor was all hyped about the fact that some accurate portrait or portrait busts of Jesus may still be around. 
may be mistaken for someone else or even as an unidentified bust in a museum collection somewhere. Wow! Now, of course, it was common for Romans to worship their deities and ancestors, their lares, in the form of statues and such. What did you say that was called? My name is Larry Nelson. This is a notification call from our Department of Tax Debt and Financial Settlement Services. Quiet, porcupine! Um, it's Larry's. L-A-R-E-S. Anyway, my intuition says that theurgists like Marcellina would have animated those statues and images as if they were talking heads, communicating with them through their intuition. and all for the sake of henosis and the soul. Yes, y'all. Yes, today we're going to feel the goodness of good vibes. In our next episode, we're going to move on to the next one or two lines of the fairy tale. Are you sure? Well, yeah, I'm sure we're moving on. See, the next two lines, they're nowhere near as loaded as this last line has been. And so... We might go through them both in one episode. For now, let me just remind you of the last line, the one that had us digging in so deeply on the subject of theurgy and hermeticism. And then I'll give you the next two lines, so you know where we're headed. The moon shone, and the little white pebbles in front of the house glistened. The little boy carefully picked them up and filled his jacket pocket with as many as he could carry. After this, he returned to bed with his sister and fell asleep. Early next morning, before the sun rose, the father and mother came to wake the children and take them into the forest. They gave them each a small piece of bread. Well, there it is. I think you heard enough from me for today. Got that right. Just don't forget... You can find the full transcript with all the links I mentioned, as well as a few surprises, on the website. Where? 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 Hey, you know the drill. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti. Goodbye.